This is part four of our six-part series called The Bible, and I pray it's helped you get a better understanding of how this uh, divine library, God's divine library came about. And as I've said, there's no doubt that the authority of the Bible is under attack today, not just uh, from without the church, but sadly from within uh, the church. There, Look, the, the Bible says things, teaches things, commands things that, that goes against the grains, that, that goes against popular opinion. And uh, when people are looking for affirmation or, 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 or uh, uh, just, just confirmation of agendas and things that they want to do, that can rub people up the wrong way way. And so, so, so really, I'm just saying to every believer as we uh, uh, go through this series, if the Bible is to get into us, then we need to get into the Bible. If the Bible is to get into you, then you need to get into the Bible. A.W. Tozer, the great devotional writer, he said this, nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. What a great quote, good quote. Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. So my job as a Christian pastor, as a leader, as a teacher is to what? Is to equip you. Equip you for what? For the work of the ministry. That's my job. And I hope this series is playing a part in doing that for you. So it's important as a Christ follower, that we settle what we believe about the Bible, what we believe God's Word, His divine library to be. And for me, as it is for most believing Christians, it is the only authoritative written revelation of God. Now, last week, we looked at how we got what we call the Bible today. How did that come about? The, we, we looked how the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 of the New Testament, uh, came, came to be in what is known as the canon of uh, Scripture. We saw that early Jewish and church leaders did not create the canon. A group of religious leaders did not sit and determine which books would be called Scripture and which, which books wouldn't, which books would be called the inspired Word of God. Rather, how it happened was over time, leaders merely recognized those books that were God-breathed, that were God-inspired. The scholars uh, Geisler and Nick said this when writing on the canon of Scripture. I love it. They said, A book is not the Word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the Word of God. That is, God gives the book its divine authority, not the people of God. They merely recognize the divine authority which God gives it. As J.R. Packer said, the church no more created the canon than Newton created the law of gravity. Recognition is not creation. And Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said, to the canonical scriptures alone, I owe agreement without dissent. And so if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and check out the series as it's been so far. But the question I want to ask today is this, how do we know that the Bible hasn't changed over the years? How do we know that the Bible we read today is the same one that Augustine, the church fathers, was talking about? How do we know it's the one the early church fathers affirmed? I mean, could the biblical text have become corrupted over the years during its transmission over, over the centuries? Could it have become 
corrupted like Chinese whispers that change over, over time. We're going to look at that today. So the biblical scholar w, w. Edward Glennie said this. He said, the New Testament is the most remarkably preserved book in the ancient world. Not only do we have the great number of manuscripts, but they are close in time to the originals that they represent. Uh, 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 re that they represent. Some partial manuscripts of the New Testament are from the second century AD, and many are within four centuries of the originals. These facts are all the more amazing when they are compared to the preservation of other ancient literature. Now, John Warwick Montgomery, who was a lawyer, a professor, a theologian, a distinguished research professor, philosophy, author of a number of books, including Christianity and History. And I just want to say here, I tell you their qualifications on, on purpose. I do that on purpose, as I want you to understand that I'm not grabbing this from Fancy Fred on Facebook, some self-proclaimed social media influencer. Uh, what I'm bringing to you today is from real experts in the field of their study. And here is what Montgomery said. To be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity. Antiquity just means history. It's just talking about the history of something. So I'll read that again. To be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. So bibliographically, and that, that just means really, it's not talking about the Bible. Remember, by, that, that word just means book. But bibliographically just means a list of writings on a given topic. So what was he saying here? What was Montgomery saying here? I'm, I'm gonna try and put it, if you like, in simple terms so we can understand it. And this is just me saying it, putting his statement. This is how I'd put it. If you're skip, skeptical of historical manuscripts of the New Testament, you may as well forget about all of the manuscripts that attest to other parts of ancient history, as they pale into comparison to the amount of ancient documents and manuscripts that we have backing up the authenticity of the New Testament. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's take a look at just one figure in ancient history, the figure of Julius Caesar, the emperor of Rome. He was actually assassinated, believe it or not, in uh, uh, this past week, on March uh, 15th, he was assassinated in 44 BC. He was stabbed 20, I just looked this up this morning, he was stabbed 23 times by a group of senators. I, I think there was 60 to 80 senators in all who had conspired against him. But when we think of Julius Caesar, who we, we know, is, uh, he was a friend of Cleopatra, he was a well-known person in history, but when we think about his life, regarding his life, there are only, here's what I want you to know, there are only a total of 251 manuscripts regarding his life. The earliest was dated 900 years after his death. 
Most, though, are dated 1,500, 1,500 years after his death. But we don't doubt him as a person who really existed and was a part of history. Now, it's not to say, it's not to say that there are not more uh, manuscripts out there to be found, or it's, or, or, or it's not to say that there aren't older ones out there. We just know what is in our possession historically is 251 manuscripts regarding his life. I mean, many ancient manuscripts were destroyed in battles when enemies tried to erase the history of their foe. And uh, I, I would just say there, just a little aside, be concerned when people start, uh, uh, start changing history, wanting to rewrite history. When people start to burn books, you should, be, you should be concerned about that or try and change history. Over the centuries, of course, manuscripts were lost in major fires. The library in Alexandra was one of them where millions of manuscripts were destroyed because of a Fire, but over the centuries, uh, uh, this, this is what has happened for Julius Caesar. We have 251 manuscripts. So, so uh, again, this is all that we have to affirm that Julius Caesar was and what we know about him. So, two of the most important questions that textual critics ask when studying ancient documents are this number one, how many copies of this unobtainable original ancient manuscript? Do we have? In Caesar's case, it's 251. The second thing uh, uh, they ask is, how close is the date that this copy was written to the date of the original? For example, here's another uh, uh, historian called Herodias. Because uh, uh, when we think about his life, we have just eight copies. He's a famous historian, but we have just eight copies of manuscripts that give details of his life life and his work. And these copies were written approximately 1,300 years after the original. We also have another historian in history called uh, uh, Tacitus. And Tacitus, who is often referred to as one of the greatest Roman historians, we have about 20 copies, just 20, 20 copies of manuscripts detailing his life and his works. And, 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 Again, this was written 1,000 years after the original. But when we come to the Bible, when we compare the amount of Bible manuscripts we have, I just want to say the comparison is insane. Uh, the wealth of biblical manuscripts compared to other ancient literature is not even on the same planet. In the 18th century, and I want you to note that, remember that, the 18th century biblical scholar, F.J.A. Hort, we're going to come back to that. I'm going I'm to remind you of something a little bit later. But the 18th century biblical scholar, F.J.A. Hort, said this, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely unapproachably alone among ancient writings. Listen, can I just say this? Let's, let's look at it now. The number of available manuscripts for just the New Testament, just the New Testament, is overwhelmingly greater than those of any other work of ancient literature. Over 5,000 
800 manuscripts. Nearest manuscript to the actual time, just 30 years. Just how many total manuscripts are there? Well, if you were to stack, if you were to stack all of the New Testament manuscripts, how high would they be? Of just the 5,800 plus Greek New Testament manuscripts, there are more than 2.6 million pages. So if you were to stack them, they would stack, listen to this, one mile high. If you were then combining both the Old and New Testament, the whole Bible that we have today, there are more than 66 not 251, not 8, not 20, 66,000 manuscripts and scrolls. And, and, and so if they were to be stacked, if they were to be stacked, the Old Testament, the New Testament manuscripts, how high would they be? Well, I want to say they would be two and a half miles high. Two and a half miles high. That blows my mind. The other thing that blows my mind is who works this stuff out? Who sits there and goes with a calculator? Let's calculate how high that would be. But that, that, that's incredible, the amount of, of manuscripts that we have in support of the Bible. But I guess the question is, then how do we know that what we have today, though, how do we know what we have today as the Bible has not been corrupted over time? I mean, one answer is simply this, and there are more, but I'm just giving you one in the time that we have today. But one answer is the Dead Sea Scrolls. When we were in Israel a couple of years ago, back in the olden days, like I said, when you can, uh, when you can travel on airplanes and stuff, when we were in Israel, we spent a full day at sites around the Dead Sea. It's an hour by bus, and after an hour, we found ourselves on the salty shores of what was the Dead Sea in the middle of the Judean uh, wilderness. Uh, of course, if you know anything about the Dead Sea, it's the lowest point on earth, 400 meters below sea level. But there's so many incredible places of historic and biblical uh, interest. And so we first went to or ascended to Masada, which is an ancient fortress where, where Jewish freedom fighters took their own lives rather than be taken captive by the Romans. A spectacular story right there. We then Went uh, just a short while down the road. We then went to the spring of En En Gedi, where David hid in the caves from Saul. It's amazing. You can see the caves all over uh, over the place. And the reason they were there was because there was water uh, there. And uh, you know, that, as a deer panteth for the water, that was in En Gedi because it was the only place the water. Uh, was and, and in that place, that's where he had an opportunity to kill Saul. But he said, "No, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed." And uh, just just powerful things happened uh, in that place. And then, before we took a dip in the Dead Sea, we visited a place where Bedouin shepherds had discovered the first of the Dead Sea scrolls in what was called Cave Number One. And their discovery, the discovery, you're like, well, what's the big deal? big deal? Well, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is regarded as the greatest archaeological find of the 20th century. It stands as that today. So what's the big deal? What was their significance? So understand this. At some point, at some point, each writing of Scripture had to be copied from the author's Original. Why? 
in order to preserve it for generations to come. There was no printing press. There was no paper for that matter. And so they needed to be preserved. Ink would fade. Leather uh, would rot. Parchment would decay. Papyrus would, would crumble. And so this created the need for individuals to carefully transcribe their original writing into an accurate copy known as a manuscript. So this process of making copies from previous copies preserved the writings we now know as Scripture, as well as many other writings. So the, the, the people who did this, they were known as scribes. And up until the invention of the printing press, which really revolutionized the world, but up until the invention of the printing press, this was a very, very prestigious and important, important job. In fact, I, I looked up, I did a bit of study on the side uh, just to look at what was required of a Jew to a scholar. Because I don't want you to think, oh, mate, can you copy that? Can you whip us up a few copies? That's not how uh, it was done. This was a very serious profession. They were, they were capturing, uh, capturing history. So, so, so this is what I, what I found out, some of the rules regarding Jewish scribes and the procedures that they had to follow when copying the Torah and eventually other books of the Bible. Number one, they could only use clean animal skins, both to write on, even to bind manuscripts. Two, each column of writing could have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. Three, the ink must be black and of a special recipe. Four, they must, e e they must say each word aloud while they were writing. Five, they must wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies uh, wash their entire bodies before writing the most holy name of God. That is very time consuming. Uh, uh, before they write Yahweh every time, before they could do that, they had to wash their bodies, wash the pen, wash, and, 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 and before they could even write it down. Number six, there must be a review of what they'd written in, within 30 days. And if as many as three pages required corrections, the entire manuscript had to be redone. Seven, the letters and words and paragraphs had to be counted, and the document became invalid if two letters touched each other. The middle paragraph, word, and letter must correspond to those in the original document. Eight, the documents could only be stored in sacred places, synagogues, etc. Nine, and no document containing God's word would be destroyed. They were stored or buried. One interesting thing, when we were in Israel, and we went to the Wailing Wall uh, there, the Western Wall, and within the wall, in the cracks of the wall, there are hundreds, if not millions, of prayers of the people who, who, who pray from, come from all around the world and write their prayers down and place it into what is the holiest place for uh, Jewish people. And we, we asked the question, what happens to all these pieces of paper, M millions of them? And, 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 and they said this, well, well, they don't burn them. They don't pull them out. There are volunteers who actually come along and pull at nighttime every single one of those, uh, when it gets too full, every single one of those bits of prayers, papers out. They don't burn them and just uh, get rid of them. No, they take them and they're actually buried in a special place on the Mount of Olives. So they, they stay there. So it's a very, uh, what is written is regarded as a very special, uh, special thing, but that's a, just a little aside uh, aside there. So, so understand, all, all I'm trying to convey to you is this isn't just Jim copying something for Bob. This is a very special uh, uh, job and, and a very prestigious job in the day. And also, 
understand the scribe's job was not to interpret the text. They didn't give you their opinion on the text. Their job was to copy the text accurately, not to interpret it. Now, of course, with the invention of the printing press, the, the need for the scribe decreased. Uh, but up until then, they were a key part of keeping accurate records from generation to generation. Now, because today we are dealing only with copies of the original manuscript, all the manuscripts we have are just copies of the originals themselves, it is expected that there might be some copying errors over time. So that's why it stands to reason that those manuscripts or copies that are closer to the originals are more likely to have fewer copying errors, if that makes sense. Because if one error is made in copying down of a manuscript, all future manuscript copies are going to reproduce the error. So the earlier manuscripts tend to be the more accurate because they are closer, if you like, to the original. And here's the thing. Nobody actually knew just how amazingly accurate the Old Testament copies were until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, in 1947. Before 1947, the oldest complete Hebrew manuscript dated AD 900, 900 years. But here is why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so significant. When the shepherds discovered the manuscripts in the caves near the Dead Sea, when paleographers, that's just people who study ancient writings, dated the newly discovered scrolls, it was found that the Old Testament manuscripts dated to around 125 BC. In other words, these scrolls were a thousand years older than any previously known manuscripts. But here's the exciting part. Here's the bit that made it just mind-blowing. Once the Dead Sea Scrolls were compared with the latter manuscripts and copies that, uh, that, that were already in existence, the then current Hebrew Bible proved to be identical, listen, word for word in more than 95% of the text. The other 5% was, consisted mainly of spelling variations but didn't really change the meaning. This is the Dead Sea Scroll book of the, uh, that was found of the prophet Isaiah. It was found pretty much intact. Other books were, were torn. One book was torn into 15,000 uh, fragments, which took actually one team of people till 1979 to put those fragments. They found it in the 1940s, but it took them until 1979 to put that jigsaw puzzle back together. But the book of Isaiah was found mostly intact. Uh, but here is what the greatest manuscript discovery of all time revealed. That a thousand years of copying the Old Testament has produced only very minor variations, none of which altered the clear meaning of the text or brought the manuscript's fundamental integrity into question. 
So they were able to see that, that they had these manuscripts at 900, and then these, they found these that had been written earlier by, by pretty much 1,000 years, and they could see all the copying that was done in that time did not change. That was the miracle of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I said before to take note that I mentioned 18th century biblical scholar F.J.A. Hall. I said, take a, take a note of that. that. That was what he said was in the 18th century. And he said, I remind you, in a variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely unapproachably alone among ancient writings. So this was said in the 18th century. Understand, uh, the evidence was strong before the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery. The evidence was powerful before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But with them, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have absolute proof. The Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the Old Testament we read today is indeed the same one that Augustine was talking about and the early church fathers affirmed. So we began today with the question, could the biblical text have become corrupted during the transmission over and through the centuries? Could it have been like Chinese whispers that, that change over time? Well, I want to tell you the Dead Sea Scrolls say no. It is clear that the scribes' calling and dedication to their work, carefully and accurately using their time to copy the holy text word for word, has preserved the Biblios, the Bible, over the centuries. The Bible we have today is the same Bible they had then. Now, some might say, but Pastor, doesn't it say in one gospel that there are two angels at the tomb? And then in another gospel, it says there was just one. Isn't that a contradiction? Isn't that just a, isn't that just a clear contradiction? Or it sounds like a mistake to me. And, and Pastor, you still haven't answered. Should we take the Bible literally? Well, no, I haven't answered those questions yet. But let's look at them next week as we continue in part Five, talking about God's beautiful, divine library. Before I close, I just want to ask, have you given your life to Christ? The Bible speaks of. The Bible's overarching story is the story of redemption, the story of Christ. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Do you know Him? You might be here and you might say, well, Pastor, you've got to understand my life. I'm, I'm a mess. I've, I've got to sort myself out before I can ever follow Christ. No, let me say this. The gospel is not about how bad you are. It's about how good God is. It's what Christ has done on the cross. And we trust in His unfailing love, His unfailing mercy. He justifies. We can't justify ourselves. He justifies us. He who knew no sin became sin for us we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's in Christ no condemnation is found. It's in Christ that we're more than a conqueror. It's in Christ that we can do all things. 
Have you given your life to Christ? How do I do that? Well, you just say, God, I, I, I turn from my sin. I repent, I turn from my, to repent means you turn away from your sin and you turn towards God. Get off the throne of your heart and allow Him to be King and Lord of your life. He's only a prayer away. God, come into my life. Christ, come and be my Savior and my Lord. Oh, I wanna encourage you to pray that prayer today. Ask Him, make Him Lord of your life. And as He changed my life, He will change your life too. Oh, I pray you would do that today. You know, as I close, I just wanna ask you, wherever you are, maybe just stand up and let me pronounce a blessing over your life. A blessing from the ancient Scriptures from the Bible, from that which was found in the cave on the shores of the Dead Sea. And it says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. God bless you.